Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we take a little trip around the world from a feminist angle, something we don't do often enough. First to Russia, where we talk about political implications of the World Cup and some of our favorite protests at the games. To China, where women factory workers are getting their networking groups shut down. To Nepal, where menstruation taboos are leading to the deaths of girls and women. And finally, to Egypt, where we learn about an amazing program to combat street harassment. Hello. I'm kind of froggy. It's early. I listen to myself croak that intro. And I'm like, oof. Oh. <laughs> you sound great to me. Thanks, boo-boo. How's it going? Yeah, you know, it's good. Just trying to just trying to live my life. Um, I have to tell you that I'm, I'm wearing like the result of what I feel like is your influence in my life, which is to say I finally purchased a Kimpton Hotel robe on the internet. <laughs> yes. Man, you could have just grabbed one from my house. You know, I have three, right? <laughs> I know, but but here's the thing. I wanted, there's like... I did not buy three. Three separate people know how much I love them and gifted them to me. Um, And having a good robe collection when you work from home is actually kind of dangerous. (laughs) It is a problem in my life, but you know what? I manage. Well, you know, speaking of amazing things you can have on your body, shopcyg.com is up and running. And so many people have been buying things. So, Oh my God. If you want the world's softest t-shirt, you want some like Shine Fairy swag, that's the place to go. And we're going to have a few new items rolling out slowly and deliberately as we like build this little corner of our business slowly. So yeah, so stay tuned for more new great stuff. Other reminder is, can you believe it has been three months since our Bleeding for Amina blood drive? What? Yes, I can Um, believe it. I feel great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all those all those hundreds of pints of blood have been coursing through you. <laughs> vampire vampire blood. <laughs> so like I did my like follow-up donation and I got to say it kind of felt even better than giving at the blood drive because it was like I could go on my own time. I could like I I went with a pal so you know blood donation buddy situation. So anyway, just a reminder to those of you who gave in April and May that we would love to have you give again. And we're not keeping track now. Now this is just like honor system slash buddy system. That's great. What are we talking about today? <laughs> Girl, we're talking about <laughs> existential crisis. You know, we're talking about poop again. Just kidding. No way. We're talking. Uh, we're now talking metaphorically about poop. <laughs> can we talk about poop for two seconds? Sure. Did you get many text messages from all of our friends about their different poop habits? Because I oh did, and it made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I I also got texts from a lot of friends with kids who were like listening with their kids in the room, which like shout out to those of you who parent while listening to CYG and about how their kids were like, are they talking about poo? Like what? Like they were just like shocked and like semi scandalized. <laughs> I um yeah, it made it made my day. So, you know, everybody uh, talk to your friends about your poop habits. It'll oh Mike could save your life. 
Yeah, we definitely, and, and our, our inbox is uh, incredible at this moment, I have to say. The, the poop updates in our inbox. <laughs> I know. It made me, like, really happy to hear from, to hear from people about poop. Uh, oh. So maybe, maybe we'll revisit it soon. Yeah, and, like, and also, like, shout out to those of you who wrote about, like, your friends with colon cancer or, like, other kind of, like, big, serious health stuff related to that episode. Like, shout out to people who replied with their own, like, public bathroom pains and struggles. Like, we are reading and seeing you. (laughs) Right. And shout out to the bike messenger in Seattle who was like, I've pooped in every skyscraper in downtown Seattle. (laughs) That was, like, the best email. (laughs) Where she was like, I know every bathroom, like, downtown. Amazing. Like, you're you're my Shiro, for sure. Yeah. Shout out to all of you. Okay, the thing we're talking about today is, uh, I guess, feminist news around the world. A global lens, if you will. A a global lens. Let's go country by country. What you got first? Oh, my God. Well, I have to say that, like, I have been having this experience reading the news, which is partially to do with the fact that the World Cup was in Russia. I'm, like, thinking a little bit differently about countries with oppressive and authoritarian regimes that, that, that squash dissent and reading the news from those places with like a different mindset than I feel like I did even a year ago. And so like I, you know, there were, there were definitely a few op-eds out of Russia that were like, hey, guess what? Like as you are tuning into this like global, ostensibly a political sporting event in this place, like don't forget what the people who actually live in this country are subject to, especially LGBTQ people who live in this country, but really like anyone who wants to personally express something that is not a view the government loves. Right. Well, one of the coolest protests that happened at the World Cup was, um, did you see this, the hidden flag protest? No, tell me about it. It's these six international activists who are also soccer fans. God, I hate saying the word soccer so much. Who are you can say um, football? We know what you football. Mean. <laughs> who are also football fans? They basically color coordinated their jerseys to be rainbow colored, because you know in Russia it is illegal to show uh, a rainbow flag. Oh my god, and that so is so brilliant! You should look this up. The Hidden Flag Project. They're great, and you know, like this. It is really hard. Like, I, I, I talked to a couple friends who were in, in Moscow who are LGBT folks and are also football fans. And global capitalism, like, makes it so hard to, like, be an honest person in the world. Something as, like, community-oriented as, like, the World Cup still has so much that is fucked up about it, you know? It's like Russia 100% bribed their way into hosting this World Cup, like, 100%. FIFA is a corruption engine. It's, like, bad news. And then you think about the fact that LGBT folks around the world, like, also want to watch football. And they're not allowed to fully express themselves. And then you think about, like, Russian people, Russian people who are LGBT, and how much worse it is for them there. And to have this competition that comes in that is, you know, like, I love the World Cup. It's, it's my favorite time every four years. Like, the best, best, best. Big, bigger than, like, global tennis? Like, let's be real. 100% bigger than global tennis. Global tennis <laughs> Which is, is saying every, something like, for you. Like, global tennis is all year. Yeah, it's, like, saying a lot for me. <laughs> 
But like, you know, World Cup is like, every, like, I like it more than the Olympics. You know, it's like the next World Cup is in Qatar, which is not known to be, uh, you know, like a beacon of freedom either in the Middle East. And actual like slave labor is being used to build the stadiums over there. Yeah. It's one of those things that, like, it really shines a mirror back on me on the things that I enjoy because it's really easy for me to not participate in American football, you know, because, like, I I justify it, like, every which way. Like, one, I was like, I didn't grow up with it. Two, it's, like, actually barbaric, you know, (laughs) and, like, people are having (laughs) concussions and dying and black bodies are being exploited, and I can be really smug about that, but I, you know, like... Right, like you're not a fan smugness. Right, like, but the examining the actual, you know, like the politics of the sport that I love so much uh, is like, that's hard for me. Yeah, totally. As you know, I like, I float like a fine film above all sports fandom. Like, it's not really like my thing anywhere, but I did like anything with kind of like a geopolitical angle or like I'm always interested in stories, like particularly in this World Cup, but all the time about immigrants and like the role of like who gets recognized as like being from a country when they're just trying to live their lives there versus when they are like winning games for them on the field like those aspects of the world cup are things that I'm like very very tuned into and like really enjoy like huh like how are you going to square this circle you know <laughs> like like right. those questions yeah Right, like the fact that France is becoming more and more hostile to immigrants, but like literally they win <laughs> they win world tournaments because of immigration. Right. It's, uh, it is infuriating. And I mean, and that's true, like pretty much all over the world. But watching this particular squad, like this particular French squad, and watching like Macron love watching the games on the background of he just came back from a tour in Africa. It was actually like very weird to watch him play basketball at my old um, school. It made me very emotional, weirdly. I was like, oh, is this how Americans feel like all the time? But anyway, like... Like I'm seeing gonna, your past pop up in the right, news. Right, seeing your past mean. pop up in the news all the time. But he made these like very derogatory remarks everywhere in Africa, like admonishing people for having too many children, like admonishing people for immigration, all of this stuff. And then, you know, like one week later here he is like losing his mind at this like squad of like black and Brown folks, like leading his team to like global domination on the soccer pitch on the football pitch. Right. And I mean, and it's also like just every even like on the basic level of like the commentary, like this player's parents were born in this place, but he was raised in that place and he plays for this team now. It's like such an illustration of like, like how normalized migration should be. This is not like a weird thing to be like born to parents who are from somewhere else and then migrate somewhere to like a third country yourself or like well, build a life Well, it's there. especially not weird when that country is known for being like a colonial asshole superpower. You oh my god, I'm I mean? eyeball emojiing so hard right now. Like, exactly, I, just, you know, yeah. like it's just one of those things that I'm like, France. If you don't want African people, you should have never went to Africa. You know what I'm saying? Like, right? Like Belgium, you have been inextricably you linked to yourselves, right? <laughs> Belgium, if you don't want Congolese people and Rwandan people all over your country, you should have never went over there. Like, this is <laughs> this is the legacy. You know, like, it just, the hypocrisy is so much and the jig is sky high. Mm-hmm. It's the same in the United States where, 
like all these white people who are like, I'm American. I'm just like, are you, mm, you know, like which one of your ancestors like stole a chicken and like came over here, like fake protesting like religion, you know? Everybody or is even, just such a hypocrite about what it means. You know, like global migration is not a new thing. The other thing that drives me nuts when we talk about like conversations about immigration and migration, it's like forgetting that um, for most black people in the United States, like they are not a product of, you know, like some sort of like happy migration story. Totally. Actually, totally. like, yes, like whenever I see these like we are all immigrants, like immigration is great. It's like mm, this is true for a lot of people. It is not true, particularly for a lot of people as well. So, yes, immigration is great and it's wonderful. But like some people were forced here. So learn about the history of enslaved people. But even in Europe, the, the, the like migration trends that people talk about, a lot of them are not happy stories. Like people weren't like, oh my God, like I would love to come to the Paris suburbs and work in this Peugeot factory. It's like, no, literally like people had to because right. of the way that the global economy was structured. Yeah. And like, that's the sort of thing too, where this is so interesting to me because it's this like on a level of, like, the news or on a level of how politicians t respond to it, like, light-touch cultural as opposed to, like, heavy, like, policies about capitalism and racism and, like, big, big, like, ongoing centuries-old problems. It's basically the equivalent, like, you know, like, Macron be like, oh, my God, we love this winning team, is, like, the same thing as, like, watching, like, Trump administration officials eat at a Mexican restaurant or try to. You know what I mean? It's, like, this sense you of, know, like... You know, I would not go that far. <laughs> vibe-wise, vibe-wise. I'm like, I'm gonna let you have it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It's also the kind of thing where, like, sports is... I think that, like, sports people have it right that you can tell global stories through the lens of sports and like human stories through the lens of sports, but also like they fail at it every single time, you know, in the sense where, so Croatia is like one of the teams that end up in the final, you know, they have this like incredible story decades ago, they had a war. And then now a lot of those kids who grew up in the war are like competing on a global level, you know, like to the point where they're almost going to take this World Cup home. So it is like this very feel-good story. Their uh, president is a woman. She came to every single game wearing the Croatian jersey and, you know, like flew herself in coach. And so the media stories around that are like, you know, like hats off to the president of Croatia. She attended like every Croatia match at the World Cup. She travels in economy class and she sits with the fans. So it's like this feel good story. And then none of them like tell you that she's actually from the far right part <laughs> party in her country and that all of these choices that she's making are actually like, you know, they're part of upholding Croatian nationalism and into the founding myth of Croatian nationalism, mm -hmm. which... To be fair, like, I don't know a ton about, and that is not my country, and I do not, um, like, Croatia does not make me lose sleep, you know? But just, like, just watching how something, something like that, it, you know, like, the sports people just miss, the sports reporters miss all the time because they're too busy, like, telling you this feel-good story about, you know, like, it's almost like a, oh, my God, like, feminism, this is great, or whatever, and you're like, actually, like, shit is hella fucked up in Croatia right now. And you are not telling the story that you're supposed to be telling. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I'm getting at in terms of, like, there are certain boundaries drawn around, like, the, the kind of low-key banter that happens in between, like, in the breaks in the during the game. And I think that that is where it's, like, it's not cool to be, like, 
by the way, 145 million Russians live in a supreme, like a supremely oppressive state. Like, you know what I mean? Listen, like, it's not that like, would be cool. Actually, I would watch I know. for that commentary. I, I really would because I'm just saying it doesn't happen, or at least not what I heard. I granted, I did not watch like every game. Like, maybe someone is hearing a different commentary right. than I was, but I mean, that's definitely not happening on Fox News. Let me tell you. Um, you know, and it is, it's just like very infuriating because the truth is that like your average soccer fan is actually very woke. And also if you think about it, uh, nationalism is more than 50% of the reason that people love soccer, you know, <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. the problem. And so there, there's so much more to discuss there. Anyway, like we're all complicit in, in like global capitalism. It's hard you know, see you at the World Cup in four years. It's true. And shout out to the, like, the fine women of Pussy Riot for <laughs> their screaming and running on the field as well. Shout out to I the don't know, flag and folks. It was, like, a very ill-timed uh, protest that, like, cost Croatia an opportunity on the pitch. So, mm. I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I I'm can't just, even... I'm just kidding. Like, clearly. I, I love that. I Yeah. I, I I truly, because I have, like, so little interest in the actual sport, I'm like, I don't even know. Like, I obviously watched all of this, like, all the relevant political stuff in clips and, like, in news articles later. I was not like, what's happening on the pitch? No, I was <laughs> watching it, and I was so irritated. I was like, what is this? And also, it was so... Um, yeah, it was it was really actually fascinating how they showed it because on the channel that I was watching, you saw like one person run on the pitch. I didn't realize that it was four different people and they pulled back all the cameras at that point and started doing commentary on something else where you were like, wait, the game is literally stopped. There are people trying to high five the players but you're talking about this other dumb thing. And you could tell that, like, the presenters were actually, like, very irritated by it. They were like, ugh, like, what is going on here? It wasn't until later that you found out that it was a pussy riot protest. That would have been an amazing opportunity, actually, to discuss what was going on. And instead, that is not what happened. Right. Like, this could be a protest by any number, like, of people who are offended by things that this regime has done, right? Like, just like a speculative commentary, which is what they do about all kinds of other things, right? Like, wonder what's going on here. Like, let's share some stats about, like, the context for this game. Right. Um, You know, so four members of Pussy Riot were sentenced to 15 days in jail and banned from attending sporting events for three years after they participated, according to ABC News, in a dramatic on-field protest during the World Cup final in Moscow. It was not dramatic. Calm down. I mean, I feel like by any any on-field protest during the World Cup it is by definition dramatic. Like, I think that that is what that is referring to. You know, the thing, too, is that, like, <laughs> there is a rich history of streakers in <laughs> this kind of competition. <laughs> so the minute I saw people on the... I was like, God, like, just keep your clothes on. This is not what's happening. And it's like, oh, this is different. Got it. Yeah. If, like, it exists that there is someone who's doing commentary over a game that is, like, about political context in addition to stories of the players and things like that, I would so listen to that. Like, that is, like, a sporting commentary I would tune into. I know. Where are my woke sports people? I know. Like, what are all these, like, soccer podcasters doing with their time? I'm like, you know, like, get a, like political scientists from like the nations who are playing against each other and like get them to discuss in real time while the game happens. I would be so there for that. Listen, somebody already wrote the how soccer explains the world. Um, 
But really, it's just a theory of globalization. It's not really a woke sports model. So that's what know. I mean. I'm like, I want people from from like the nations who are playing each other to like be in dialogue and like give some context for what's happening in their country right now. Not like one armchair guy from America being like globalization is real. Um, <laughs> although that's also true. <laughs> So true. Well, on one hand, fuck capitalism. On the other hand, my team won. So, you know, this is just what it's like to be. It's, this is what it's like to be a human being in 2018. <laughs> was France your number one pick? Was like that your like team from day one? Always, 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 always. It's very hard in my, in my house because growing up, I was the only France supporter for a long time. And here's the thing. France has historically not been a great team. And everybody in my family are, like, big Brazil supporters. And some of it is just, it's, like, geopolitical, like, bullshit nonsense. So, for years, I was made fun of for being a France fan. But it has paid off. One in 98. One in 2018. So, at 20 years, I will be vindicated again. Oh, my God. That is a slow schedule for vindication. I have, like... (laughs) Listen, 20 years is literally four tournaments. Like, it's fine. I mean, I get that, but also 20 years. Like, what are our lives going to be like in 20 years? Like, that is, that. I mean, I can't. I can't Me? Even. I'm probably going to be coaching a football team. <laughs> oh, my God. You're, how great would your kit be? It would be the best. Caftans. Caftan on caftan on caftan. Um, Ugh, that's billowing on the sidelines. That's yeah. right. Billowing on the sidelines and yelling, yelling at the refs. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Okay, moving on to elsewhere around the world. Shall we do some quick hits of like what's going on? Let's do it. What's going on in China, Anne? Okay, so I was reading this article in Quartz about how on Weibo, these female factory workers in China had been, had created this group whose name translates to Pepper Tribe, which I love. And I I know. Anyway, it's a forum where they have... 20,000 women or followers who are essentially just talking about like their struggles in the workplace, which are factories in China. They're basically like, these are the rights we want. This is the money we want. Some pretty basic organizing stuff that like I clicked on this article because I'm like, oh yeah, like how many of these circles am I in, in my corner of the world, right? Like in my corner of the internet. Last week, the account was permanently blocked, basically meaning like none of these women can network and speak to each other this way anymore. And I just like, there's something about reading these articles where I was always like, yeah, like it is horrible that you do not have like the freedom to organize like people everywhere. Like, but there's something about it where I'm just like, I'm really relating to it on a level of like what is like the near future for me in my life and like the kind of organizing that I do. There was some kind of thing about seeing this like parallel structure to a thing that's very common in my life, which is like women talking in a like closed online forum and being like that 
that is not being allowed to exist. And, you know, it's like, I don't have a ton of info about it, but that sense that I was kind of saying earlier about reading international news with a different eye, like under this administration is like, is a real experience that I'm having. And yeah, so quick hit, quick hit for, uh, from China about women trying to organize for better labor practices in factories. Um, what's going on in Nepal? I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) The scam doesn't work. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not going to summarize all the global news we're reading. I'm like, you got to tell me what's going on in Nepal. I I loved it. I was just going to be like, pick countries out of my ass and be like, and. You're just going to like set the microphone down and walk away. (laughs) What's going on in Micronesia? And like, meanwhile, I'm making lunch. (laughs) What if I were like right on top of my Micronesia news and like knew like the, the like number one like piece of feminist news from Micronesia? God, I aspire to be that woman. Oh, listen, shout out to Micronesia. We'll be there for you. So this very depressing article in the Times a couple of weeks ago basically had to deal with a corner in Nepal that's like deep in the Himalayas where women are banned from their homes every month when they get their periods because they're considered polluted, toxic, and there's an oppressive regime that's evolved around this taboo, you know? So it it's interesting. Like, we haven't talked about... Uh, you know, like menstrual politics on the show in a, I think like in a while. And the context in which we usually talk about menstruation in the Western world is always like, well, give us, you know, like we want tampons. There's a lot of like snarky period art that happens. And reading this was like such a reminder that actually like menstruation is still a real taboo and that in parts of the world, it's a life and death situation. Everything from women who like can't go to school because they're having their periods. And then now in this case in rural Nepal, girls were like literally being sent to period huts, like in the middle of nowhere where they're dying from smoke inhalation and snake bite because people are just like too scared to talk about menstruation. It's just, we really need more conversations about menstrual taboos because it's actually, it is killing women on so many levels. Yeah, and this story stuck out to me, too, because I know, like, certainly, like, like us privately and definitely, like, on this podcast in the past, like, we've joked about, like, oh, my God, how great would a menstrual hut be? How wonderful would it be to just sequester yourself when you are, like, you know, in, in the throes of it? And I Yeah, was no, just, they like, actually have them in some places, and it's, like, forced. Exactly. And when I read this article, I was like, oh, wow, okay, like, check, check your perspective on this one, like, in a real way. Yeah. And again, like, you know, it just ties back. The, the thing that like this ties back into for me is is this idea that people think also about periods is this like very neat, like three day event that women go through. Right. Where it's like in this case, what happens to the woman who, you know, who has abnormal bleeding to the woman who has complications so that, you know, like the practice itself is so barbaric and it's so awful, but it is also so completely misunderstood how women's menstruation works and and the female reproductive system is not understood like anywhere in the world this is not like a developing country versus like a developed country thing it's truly like people do not understand or care about how female reproductive system works and there are deadly consequences to it like all around the world 
Right. And or and it's not even like not understanding how it works. It's like willfully wanting to marginalize it. Like, I think that's what gets me. It's not like, oh, no, we're not really sure what this means. It's like, no, no, like we have no desire to normalize or understand this as an experience. It's like I, I anyway, so I'm not going to be making menstrual hut jokes for a while is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, this article is like very sobering. We'll link to it in the in the show notes. And, you know, like, it's such a reminder to me to look up, like, more, you know, organizations that do, that work in menstrual hygiene management and really think more about, like, making that a a recurring donation situation. So I'll do some research and let everybody know. If you listen to the show and you know organizations that do incredible work beyond just, like, giving pads to people, but, like, the actual work of changing the taboo we would love to hear about that right and well and zana africa which we did a fundraising campaign around a couple of years ago i believe like does some of this kind of taboo fighting work as well so you are right we'll link to them but like always eager to hear about other organizations that are working not just on a level of direct services but kind of like a cultural level of trying to fight the taboo that's like really the root of the problem yeah, and I would really encourage everybody to read this, the article that we're going to link to because the woman who is central to the story is a feminist. She led birth control classes and she encouraged women to stand up for themselves all over the world and she still fell victim to this like terrible taboo. Right. Yeah, and it's also, yeah, it's a reminder that you can kind of be doing this work and understand something, ha- have like a, a lens on it that is like an amazing feminist lens and not feel personal shame and still be affected by in a very real way by the broader cultural shame around an issue okay so speaking wait i was gonna i was gonna pick another country oh my god spin the wheel tell me what's happening in egypt (laughs) oh my god okay speaking of orgs that are doing amazing (laughs) amazing work a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with Eman Almadi, who's the Circles of Change program coordinator in Cairo. And basically what they're doing is educating cab drivers and tuk-tuk drivers about sexual harassment awareness. And it's like, it's one of those things that like seems small numbers wise, you know, it's like, oh, wow, like how many, like how many cab drivers or how many like people have you spoken to? But I also am like, I find a lot of hope lately in this kind of program that is like, we're going to start on a small interpersonal level and try to work up and outward from there. So listen to uh, Iman talk about that program. Iman, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me on. So when I heard about Circles of Change, I was so interested in this approach because I think in every country in the world, women who are working to get more free are sometimes confused or sometimes conflicted about how to involve men in that and what that looks like. And I'm curious to have you describe a little bit about Circles of Change and um, and where the idea for that effort came from. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with, it, with what you're saying. I mean, for so long, Care International in Egypt has been focusing on actually tackling gender-based violence among, you know, the Egyptian women living and Egyptian girls living here in Egypt. Uh, but then it struck us like we've been focusing on empowering women and raising their awareness to combat gender-based violence for so long. But then it struck us if you know men are the perpetrators, then why are we not engaging them in the solution? Uh, so Care has then decided to embrace a more holistic approach and engage the power holders who are actually the men and boys as part of the solution. 
Yeah, so so maybe talk a bit about what the program actually does and which men and boys um, you're engaging with specifically. Right, so at, uh, through Circles of Change, CARE has initially did one pilot with 21 tuk-tuk drivers, which is a three-wheel vehicle in Egypt, and it's used for transportation. And in slum areas, it's in fact the only transport option for these women and girls. So they have to use it, but they're constantly getting harassed uh, in these transportation uh, options. So the program then decided to utilize art therapy, gender training, street campaigns, community awareness raising, and continuity trainings to actually educate men and boys and equip them with the tools to become agents of change within their communities. So the first step that we do is an art therapy, and it's an entry point. We, we use clay, acting, and drawing, and we begin to focus on these men and boys for them to just express themselves and reflect on perspectives that are directly and indirectly linked to violence and healing. It's a confidential and safe space for them to open up, share their feelings, and begin to build trust among each other. It's, it, the main idea of it is to actually have a platform for expression. Through the, the art therapy, one of our participants, he actually realized that his violence stems from his, his father, sorry, who used to electrocute him as a form of violence. But through art therapy, wow. he actually began to draw whenever he felt angry or frustrated. And that actually helped him to then begin dealing with violence in his life and actually seek towards change. So that's, that's the, the first part, is art therapy. They're then the, the, they attend gender trainings and it focuses on you know, providing them and building their self-esteem and then providing on alternative stereotypes and gender roles and then working towards promoting behavioral change. So we go through a cognitive behavioral cycle and we, we work on their thoughts first leading uh, to their behavior and actions and we begin to challenge their thoughts and that ultimately then changes their behavior and it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool to foster behavior change. In order to actually step up and leverage their newly adaptive perception into action. They then carry out street campaigns among their community members. They tell them that they were harassers initially, but now they have gone through behavioral change and they're the ones who are now want to become allies of ending gender-based violence among women. So it's a very courageous step for them to step up and actually admit that they were harassers or perpetrators of violence and now they're ready to have a more role of ending gender-based violence. And they're, the, they're the ones who actually now carry out awareness-raising activities within the communities. We have managed to change these men and boys from perpetrators of violence to actually allies of women and girls. And they're the ones who are actually currently advocating for ending violence against women. So what is the, I, I don't want to, success rate seems like a weird term to use, but it seems like it would be difficult to have 100% of the men who you're attempting to reach be receptive to this. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, it's a, what percentage of the men in the program go on to, you know, bring these views into their communities or who, who really embrace them and decide to become active? Mm -hmm. No, no, your, your, your point is completely valid. You know, we can't just assume that everyone is going to be accepting of that idea which is why we've had dropouts through the cycle and we've had, for example, men who, after the street campaigns, they don't want to then join volunteer units. Like for them, that's enough and that's the step, that's the step that they just want to stop at and they don't want to continue the cycle. And that's very acceptable and very understanding, especially as we live in a community 
uh, or the world right now, in all fairness, it's it, you know there are a lot of economic pressures that men go through, and very understandable why would they wouldn't want to continue. So we've had dropouts throughout, and we've had people who who wouldn't want to continue, and people who resist the idea. That that has that all of that we have we have, we have engaged in. But actually, the 27 tuk-tuk drivers that I'm talking about are the ones who fully completed the cycle through our first pilot. So they're the ones who initially, you know, from the start to the end, they're the ones who are continuing with us. And then the ones who are currently right now, even after the pilot has ended, they're the ones who are in the streets, carrying out awareness raising activities among their community members and so on. So. And does that look like private conversations? Are they, are, I mean, because I think a lot about how... Um, you know, there are many men who say things among other men that they would never say in the company of women, <laughs> you know, yes. and like some of the problems, some of the problems um, with how pervasive uh, harassment and sexism are come from the fact that we as women don't always see who is encouraging this behavior or it's hard for us to know who is um, on our side, so to speak, or who is actually following through on their beliefs. And so I'm curious about um, what are some of the specific moments or scenarios that you help these men become aware of? Or, I mean, do you actually say if, if another man says this, then here is a good thing to say in reply? Like, how specific do you get with them? Right. Actually, uh, part, you know, part of those three campaigns, which is the third step that they undergo. So basically, the cycle has five concrete steps. Uh, so as I said, the first is our therapy, gender training, street campaigns, community awareness raising, and continuity trainings. So on the third step of the circle, the street campaigns, before uh, they go out on the streets and admit that they were perpetrators of violence, and now they're, they're, you know, they have changed, and now they want to raise awareness among their community. Before doing the step, they undergo specific trainings of how to speak to people on the streets, what are the replies that they could use and then they actually begin, they begin thinking like possible scenarios and possible replies that they could get from their men on the streets or like women they would speak to so it's very you know they're, they're provided with very precise trainings on possible replies that they could get from their uh, communities how they could react to that how to manage their anger how uh, to speak in a tone that's very convincing you know what's the body language that, that, that they should use putting themselves in others' shoes and understanding where they're coming from. So they're provided with very specific and technical trainings on all of these in order for them, once they're out in the communities and once they're, they provide you know, community awareness raising, they're provided with tools that they can actually utilize to raise their community's awareness. Right. I know that there are now, um, for men who have sort of been through the program, uh, a sticker or something they can put on the taxi to say that it is safe or that they have been through this program. And so talk a little bit about that in the way that you are helping women to identify men who are associated with circles of trust. Yes, right. That's so true. After they go through the cycle, they're provided with stickers that they can place on their uh, vehicles that actually declares their vehicles harassment-free zones. And through that, women actually now, they know their specific numbers and they call them on their phones to ask them for rides uh, to and from their home, to and from work, to the market, and they ask them to drop their girls off at school. So that has actually been yielding these tuk-tuk drivers' income, which has actually also been helping uh, for them to decrease their violent behavior and to actually 
lead behavior change within their community because the economic pressure is also a bit easing uh, for them at the moment. So instead, you know, in the beginning when we started, women always the always saw the tuk-tuk drivers as harassers, as drug addicts. But now to have the 27 tuk-tuk drivers that women actually, in fact, call to use their services, even if they see them on the streets while having another customers, they wait for them to drop off their old customers and then return to them to pick them up. So the amount of trust that has been built has actually been very beneficial for both sides and for the tuk-tuk drivers. It has actually been uh, an economic uh, empowerment component for them that has been yielding them more income. That's so smart, I think, because obviously we as women understand that we would prefer to give our business to people who are not going to harass us, right? Yes. <laughs> it's so logical. <laughs> for, yeah. I mean, and they, and they don't realize that the thing is that when we, when we began working with these tuk-tuk drivers, they didn't realize that their behavior would then lead to women not wanting to ride with them and not using their services. For them, it doesn't make sense because for them, tuk-tuk is the only way of transport option for these women. So they're going to have to use it either or. So right now, after we have gone through the cycle and to see that they have been getting more income just because they're a respecting woman and they're dealing with her appropriately and they're not giving her any harassment looks and you know they're treating her as she should be as an equal to them, they're then getting more money. So that aspect... It, it, you know, it has helped them to realize that their behavior change is good for them, but also for their community as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you think that this is something that, you know, obviously the program itself is probably tailored to the city or like the culture. Um, do you think this is something that could work elsewhere yeah, yeah. in other countries? Yes, definitely. I mean, the pilot focused on tackling sexual harassment among tuk-tuk drivers. But actually, through the pilot, we realized that, you know, I mean, gender-based violence is everywhere. One in three women in the world face, you know, gender-based violence. So we believe, and studies have shown, like care studies on the pilot show that it can be actually replicated and it can be, it can be potentially to impact all forms of gender-based violence across all sectors, which is what CARE wants to do. So CARE Egypt right now, we are planning to license the program and the curriculum to a variety of implementers in order to actually create a sustainable program at scale. So we, we want to transform the current pilot to a professional scalable training program to international and local NGOs in Egypt, to the private sector, and then to other regional uh, NGOs, and then potentially to the international uh, community. I mean, we all face gender-based violence. I mean, as I said, one in three women face gender-based violence in the world. So it's very crucial to actually repeat and scale up this uh, this pilot because i mean the power holders in the situation and the main target are these men and boys so it's very crucial that we engage them and into a cycle that would that would also change them and also lead you know to awareness raising within their communities that cycle is very crucial in order to actually decrease gender-based violence among women and what would you say to people, you know, back to my very first question, what would you say to people who say, listen, um, why are we giving resources to men who are the problem when we should be giving resources to women who experience the negative effects of this behavior? For so long, CARE, as well as many international local NGOs, have been focusing on the women and are empowering her to actually decrease gender-based violence. But we always keep telling women dress that way. 
you know, attend a, a self-defense class so you can defend yourself. <coughs> and of course, that's very important and we get it. It's very crucial to, you know, to raise women's awareness and empower them in order to decrease gender-based violence. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's very important to be working on both domains. It's not either or. And CARE at this moment mm. has actually established a full and complex cycle and it, you know, it has concrete steps and it has a, a very explicit time frame. We have seen the impact of it and it's very inspiring and it should be, and we believe it should be scaled up to impact all forms of gender-based violence across sectors. Iman, thank you so much for chatting with us about this program. I'm super excited to hear about the great results you're getting. My pleasure. It has been great. Thank you very much. That was great. Yeah. Really incredible. And like also nice to end on like kind of a posy note, like on our on our global tour here. Like also a good reminder that people from all over the world listen to the pod. Um, obviously a ton of Americans do, like that's fair. But, you know, I think that part of good feminist citizenship is knowing what's happening to our siblings all over the world and engaging with more than just the news that's around us. Because one, it puts a lot of things in perspective, but also I think that it's it's crucial to learn resistance tactics from people everywhere and also like realize, you know, we are intrinsically linked in trying to get free. Okay, amen to that. I'm just going to say I'll see you on the internet <laughs> all I'll over the world. I'll see you on the internet. A special shout out to everybody who listens to CYG outside of these United States of all of you. And you, I'm going to see you in person next week. Oh my God, I can't even wait. I'm the so best. happy about it. The, the best. B- the best, best, best. I'm going to go snack shopping for us. I'll do some yes. recon. I'll do some recon. I'll remember to get popcorn. Ugh. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. Uh, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.